What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. I am Kalen Wojcik, and I'm going to be one of your hosts today. Uh, again, Philip is not with us, which is a super huge bummer, but that is what it is. And um, we have another guest on the show with us today. And before we get into introducing our guest, uh, for those of you guys who are joining us for the first time, the Modern Day Sniper Podcast, what is it, who are we, and what do we do? Well, we are dedicated to discussing the most up-to-date and relative information that surrounds the lifestyle and the journey of the modern-day rifleman. Whether you're a military or law enforcement professional, a long-range shooting enthusiast, a hunter, or a, or a precision rifle competitor, you're listening to this podcast because you're dedicated to the craft, and like us, you are forever students on this endless journey of becoming the most well-rounded rifleman you can be. And so with that behind us, our guest today is uh, Mr. Ryan Kleckner, and Mr. Ryan Kleckner is—he's um, uh, been around for quite some time. And um, we're gonna—I'm not gonna steal any of his thunder. I'm gonna let Ryan jump in and, and introduce himself and give himself uh, a little bit of background. So, Ryan, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on, brother. Been around some time. Is that a nice way of saying I'm old? <laughs> we're all old. <laughs> I know. It's good. It's, 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 oh my goodness. I, I, when I was younger, I, I never thought I'd make it this far. I, I'm, I'm happy I'm here. <laughs> How old are you? How old are you? How old am I now? Yeah. I'm 40. Me too. So we're, there you go. We're there. We're still kicking, man. We're still doing yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Ryan, you're a ranger. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. I was in first ranger battalion. Yeah. For one enlistment, at least. So I, when I joined the military, I didn't even really know why I was joining the military. I think, honestly, it was a chance for me to go grow up you know, run away a little bit. I had nothing bad going on in my life. I just, I don't know, 18, 19 year old males are kind of misguided, you know? So, <laughs> so I, you came in when you were that young. I did. Yeah. I, well, I started college. I had maybe a semester or two of college underneath me and I wasn't taking it seriously. And I was doing what again, 18, 19 year old guys do. Uh, I, I'm not against uh, the government forcing anything. I, I take that back. I am against that. I'm not, I'm not for the government requiring anything but part of me goes man making military service or some kind of service requirement for guys to go grow up and keep them out of trouble and make them realize there's something bigger than themselves kind of worked for me that's you know? a good way of putting that it, it really is because there's there's a lot to that and we've had conversations you know philip and i have had conversations about like okay so what why did we do this and do you mm -hmm. really have the understand the concept or have the awareness of I'm going to, I'm going to fight for my country. It's like, you don't even understand what that means at the age of 18 or 19 years old. It's like, let's just be honest here. We're, we're here because we're young, we're male. We want to go do cool stuff with our buddies. We want to jump out of oh, here. Yeah. We want to shoot guns. We want to shoot machine guns, run around, play army. Like that's, that's just the way it is. Completely agree. I joined before 9-11. So I see guys that joined after 9-11. I remember thinking, wow, like you joined knowing you're going to war. To me, I didn't know that. I thought I was going to get some college out of it and some experiences, and this is going to sound cool. I mean, so God wanted me to be a Marine. So I was born on November 10th. So God, <laughs> that was like the message from God for me to be a Marine, and I, I didn't do it. I was talking to a Marine recruiter, Army recruiter, and I liked the idea that I got the Ranger contract at the time where they said, you got a chance to be a Ranger. Now, if you fail out any part of the way, we get to put you wherever we want in the Army. Sure. But at least you had a pipeline. You had from basic to airborne to, at the time, it was called RIP the ranger indoctrination program to try and make it into a battalion. And I have no idea how I made it. I just didn't give up. I wasn't the best, uh, especially when I got to ranger battalion, man, I struggled every single day to dig as deep as I possibly could to be mediocre. 
I mean, the guys I was with were just amazing dudes and I was not a PT stud. I, I was not, I mean, some of these guys would do the, the 10 miler in under an hour. Like, I can't do a 10 mile, 10 mile run in under an hour. That's, That's insane. Right. Yeah. That, and I'm, I'm bigger too. So at the time, I mean, I'm, I still am 6'2", but I was 6'2", 220, 225. Mm-hmm. that's big for a ranger that's a big that's a big dude yeah you know uh, most guys are you know 185 510 mm-hmm. you know 59 that's like the perfect you know size for a, a cool guy and anyway i had a wonderful time i i in a whirlwind the next thing i know i'm in rip there's tons of dudes around me and we had 100 and change dudes and they just came out at the beginning and said hey we're gonna make it worse until we get 12 of you and it just got worse and worse and I blinked and I was still left. I, I, I shouldn't have been, but I was still there. Showed up to battalion thinking I'm, I'm hot stuff because I'm in a ranger battalion now and I'm what, 19 years old. And that's when I got my rude awakening. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, How old uh, was you? Or um, what year was this? 99. Okay, cool. 1999, yeah. So yeah, maybe 2000-ish about there. Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of the same, same <clears throat> excuse me, we're the same, uh, same era. I came in in 1997. Yeah, there you go. So I, I think, it, yeah, anyway, so about that time frame and I get to battalion, I started out in a line platoon, which I loved and that's where you should start out. Yes. So I was in a, a regular platoon on a fire team and enjoyed my job, but I mean it, I, I struggled every day to just do what I can to keep up with everybody else. And it was a great experience, got tons of great training. I tell guys all the time, if they want to go in the army and they want to go to special forces, they want to do something cool. Starting off in Ranger Battalion is one of the coolest ways to get that much training and experience at that young of an age, you know, because the Ranger Battalions generally are very young, yeah. you know, not a whole lot of experience for you know, the average guy, but the amount of schools and the pipeline stuff we get to do in that, in that first four years is just unheard of. And then from there, you can be a great pipeline or feeder to other units. You know, yeah. I, I think half or more of the CAG guys are former Ranger Battalion guys. Cause you go do it for a few years, you decide what you want to do. And yeah, you're instilling that mindset. You're instilling those work ethos. You're instilling that leadership aspect. And, um, yeah. we've, we've talked about it a lot. Um, you know, the, the individual that was in charge of, um, standing up, uh, the Marine Corps fledgling Marsoc, uh, platoon MC SOCOM debt one, his name was Colonel Coates and Colonel Coates, man, he had a huge, huge hard on for Rangers because all of his leadership. Well, when he was in charge of first force recon company, every team leader, every leadership billet, you had to be Ranger qualified. That was just, Mm -hmm. that was his deal. And then if you wanted to be in MC SOCOM debt one, everybody in MC SOCOM debt one was Ranger qualified. Like he was very, very, um, very intense about that. And he knew that it was just, it was a great place to instill, uh, leadership. Now I'm not a ranger. I've not, I've not been mm-hmm. in school, but I've spoken to many, many people that have, and they, even though it's a gut check, it's a suck fest, especially for like yeah. six in the, in the Marine Corps that's, you know, been around for eight years and you throw him in with a bunch of young kids at ranger school. And he's just like, this sucks. Yeah. But I'm here. You have to have the maturity to understand why you're there and what your purpose is. Yeah, I'm glad you said, I mean, you, you see the difference. You said Ranger qualified and I used to care about it a lot more. Now I don't care anymore. Now I just think everyone's job in the military was needed and it's awesome. And I wish people would stop trying to be so cool, honestly, uh, in the military, but, uh, Ranger school, as you know, 
is something that guys in Ranger Battalion don't go to until probably they've been in Battalion for about a year. So I've actually been a Ranger for about a year. It's a leadership school. I wish it wasn't named Ranger School because it causes so much confusion, but it's, it's a great leadership school. You don't fire, contrary to what some people believe, you don't fire a single live round. Yep. You don't actually learn how to shoot. You don't do any of that stuff because it's really military leadership. And you're right, it's a gut check. It wasn't super hard. It just kind of sucked. Yeah. You know, and it taught you to motivate your peers when you had no real power over them and they were hungry and tired and didn't want to go anymore and you needed to step up and lead that day while you were fatigued and hungry. It was really good for you. So I you know, did, did ranger school, came back, uh, ended up still being on the, on the same platoon and line and enjoyed it. But a chance opened up for a sniper section slot. And at the time, we only had six active snipers in a ranger battalion. And one of the guys got out and they had an opening for it. And I put my name in the ring for it and ended up getting over to the, to the section. And what was amazing is I thought it was cool. I mean, sniper, it's like one of the most over romanticized job in the military. It sounds super, super cool until you're laying there for two days straight, but it sounded so awesome. I was excited to go. And when I showed up, I had no experience in precision rifle shooting. I mean, I grew up hunting. Mm-hmm. I grew up shooting guns, a uh, big hunting family in Arizona but we did a lot of bow hunting also. So I had, I mean, I was competent with a firearm. I'd still already been in a ranger battalion for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but no real precision rifle experience. This is still pre nine, nine 11 and a SODIC slot opened up and now they call it something else. It's the special forces sniper school. Now I think is the yeah, name of it. It, but it, it used to be called SODIC, which was like a really cool, awesome ultra sniper school. Like it wasn't where you're supposed to start. It's kind of supposed to be like a finishing school. Yep. You know, and I got to go there, but the first time I fired an M24 with a live round in it was Sodic. So I had, I had to pretend that I knew what I was doing. Okay. (laughs) I showed it up. That's a great talking point. That's a great talking point to begin with, man. Um, I've, uh, I've spent some time with, I live here in Washington state and joint uh-huh. and uh, joint base quarters right across the rock pile for me. And, um, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I've, I've hung out with the dudes at, at first group soda committee mm-hmm. kind of observed the training and I've done a couple of instructor development packages for those guys. And, and I got to know that curriculum before it went from soda to what it is now. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was interesting to me because, um, they have, a plethora of different people, a different skill sets and backgrounds that show up to that course to obtain that qualification. And so, um, for you guys, for the listeners, um, that the, the, the school that we're discussing is the army's version of more of like an advanced course. And what that course does is it qualifies those snipers to be able to engage targets within a specified proximity of friendly forces. So that way you can, you can, you can responsibly or, um, you know, uh, yeah, responsibly is probably the right word, be able to engage targets on, on a crisis site or on a target site when you're supporting uh, an assault force. So mm-hmm. that's what that's there for. And it's truly, an, it's an advanced level package or people have the persona that it's an advanced level package, but now you're doing double work as that student there because you don't have any experience and you're just like, well, uh, okay, what am yeah. I supposed to do here? Triple work because I had to pretend like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I couldn't let anyone know. I mean, I, I I hunted with a Remington 700 before, so I knew my way around the Remington 700, but not an M24. I mean, I think I was in the sniper section for a week. So to, go ahead and guess how popular I was oh. that the new guy got the Sodic slot. Well, oh. guys that have been in sniper billets for a while have been waiting to go to Sodic, and just the way the training calendar worked out since they were down, they're like, well, nobody can go 
send the new guy. So right. yeah, I, I went straight off to Sodic. Uh, amazing time. It was the who's who of the sniper community at the time. When yeah. I went in that room, I'm guessing there was about 20 of us in the course. You look around the room, it was like two OGA guys, two SF guys, two Marines, two SEALs, two Delta guys, two Rangers. Yeah, It was yeah. like the Noah's Ark of snipers, like all in one room. It was pretty darn cool. And probably a lot of those guys had, had a lot of prior experience in... They in- were all pros. Right. Yeah, they're, they're coming for their finishing school. I mean, I, I think... For the military guys, I was either the only one or one of two that was clean shaven. This is still, we had the high and tights and clean shaven. And I was, I might've been 20 at the time, maybe 21. I'll assume I I might've been 21. I don't know. I was about that age. So I was, I was definitely the small fish in a big pond, but it was an amazing time because even though the training that I got doesn't apply much anymore, I try to tell people if I went and got a computer sciences degree in 2000, it wouldn't necessarily apply today. The things I learned and the software I learned is not going to be the same anymore. It's, it's how it is. It was very Vietnam era style mm-hmm. sniper course. I mean, one of the things you're graded on was five different stocks you would do in a ghillie suit mm-hmm. that just doesn't apply anymore. You know, shooting off of anything other than the prone. I mean, we did some standing and some NRA style sling shooting, yep. but that's, I was right at the edge of the changeover of the old way of thinking about snipers and the new way of shooting. Yeah. That was, yeah, right around that 2000-ish era. You know, then we jump into combat scenarios and then snipers are coming back from combat going, whoa, 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 time out. Yeah. We really have to rethink how we're doing this stuff because it's not working for the, for the conflict. that we're Absolutely. Creating. Yeah, well, I spent no time in Sodic working on an urban hide. Wow. Okay. Right, no time. No time shooting off of anything, you know, standing. It was, it was very Vietnam era leftover type stuff, but it was great chance to shoot well because each team they teamed you up with somebody i was teamed up with a 10th special forces group guy uh each team as you go through the course you have your own shooting coach behind you so yeah. you're on the range every day for a couple months and you have a shooting coach with a just swarovski god lens spotting scope behind you at every distance just all day shooting and giving you pointers and giving you tips and getting better at calling and getting comfortable behind the gun and just i, I never would have gotten that experience anywhere else it was an amazing amazing time well, the, the other thing too is that that course, um, most people that are, you know, you guys that are listening, um, a lot of times in the sniper community courses, like what Ryan's talking about, it's like, it's a gentleman's course, right? This mm-hmm. is not a, this is not a, a, you know, a badge holders type course. Yeah. Where you're getting your ass kicked every day. Correct. There was no PT. We were actually told yeah. don't do PT. That's, that's a different <laughs> mindset because yeah. there's, you know, obviously you have the stress of, of like, look, I don't want to fail because this is a really coveted school slot. And, and not only mm-hmm. like now we understand, like when we understand that when a, when a platoon sergeant's like, Hey dude, you better pass. Like you need to yeah. understand that if you don't yeah. pass, we're not going to get this friggin' slot for another seven months. I probably would have been fired if I came back. Exactly. Failing, I, would, like, I probably lost my job. Yeah. It's a serious deal. It's a really, really serious yeah. deal. So there is that stress of performing but at the same time, I don't think it's nearly as profound as like, you know, um, uh, like in the Marine Corps, the basic, the, the scout sniper basic course, or it used to be the mm-hmm. first Marine division, whatever, the, whatever division it was like, that's a, like, that is, it's also a gut check in and of itself with yeah. the course, you know? And, and so the added stress level of saying, man, I can't fail. Plus, you know, when, when I was teaching, we would PT students, we would, you know, zero four PT was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then every Wednesday, it was an overnight patrol. So it was like you started your day on Wednesday at 04, and then you didn't end your day until 
there was no end. It just rolled right into Thursday. And then you had, you know, an evening to sleep and then PT started on Friday morning at four. I'm so glad I didn't do that. It's rough. <laughs> yeah. We were first name basis, not wearing uniforms. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were giving me a hard time the entire time for still shaving. Everyone's like, come on, stop shaving, man. I was the only one that kept shaving. I'm glad I did because about six weeks into the course, we were in town and we went to like an Applebee's in Fort Bragg area. And I walk in the door and I look to my left and it's my entire sniper section. Oh boy. They had driven up to do some sort of sniper MTT. Again, I'm still the new guy. Nobody knows who I am. They probably still hate my guts because I got this slot. They don't know who I am. And I come walking to Applebee's and I just went, oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for letting me shave. Because could you imagine how in trouble I would have been yeah. in walking in? Yeah, so it was first name basis. It was really relaxed. It was good. Um, I still have a criticism on some military courses where it's important to do gut checks and it's important to focus on what you're talking about sometimes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we need to stop and ask, what's the goal here? Exactly. And it wasn't quite a 50% attrition rate, but I remember almost half the guys ended up failing out on a range estimation. I mean, they would have you stand, stand there and turn around with your naked eye. You had to guess within 10% how far away the dude was. That's some old school stuff, man. So, yeah. I mean, so, okay, great. Maybe you, or you'd have to do the spots. Remember you would like lay down and have to draw a little range card and find the earplug laying out there. Oh yeah. You could fail out as a sniper for not finding an earplug. You know, that bothered me and they would brag and a lot of military schools do this. They brag at their attrition rate. Like, well, we only 50% make it through. My, my response is respectfully, you must be a bad instructor. Because if only half the people that come to you to learn are successful, this, or at the very least, another way of saying it is, then this isn't a course, this is a test. Exactly. Let's stop calling it a course. If, if, you're, if you're measuring how many people fail, this is a test. Yeah. And so I'm glad it was a course. I'm glad it did all that, but yeah. So when you, so you, you, you go through SODIC, you get, a, you get an established baseline. Um, you're getting coached on shooting probably not getting out of the prone position very often. If, not much. If Starting with iron sights too. Your first two weeks, iron sights only. Wow. Okay. So you wow. shoot out to 800 with iron sights and an M24. Got it. And I'm actually glad they did that. You had to earn your bipod legs and your scope by passing the first two weeks. Right. And I'm glad they did it because I think that made a whole focus on fundamentals that I would have ignored with a scope. And I think that's interesting because, you know, um, the Marine Corps marksmanship program at the basic level, you know, going through recruit training, that's something that's already incorporated in that. And part of our prerequisites on the, on the Marine Corps side is expert rifle score. So we, we know that the, that the individual has at least some sort of a grasp on uh, the fundamentals of marksmanship. And and it's a little bit different with, with the army counterparts because it's just your programs are different and and we focus on different things. But um, that's good to know because you and I both know that, um, we, we get, I wouldn't say we get crucified or we get, we get poked fun of, um, here and there, like people like myself and, and Philip and even Frank Galley and, um, you know, Jacob Bynum, because we're really, really focused and, and harping on the foundational principles of marksmanship, because that is what's going to save you. Who gives you a hard time for that? Uh, people nowadays, you know, in the precision shooting community, like everybody wants to, everybody wants to hit the easy button. Everybody wants to say, mm. okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grab this 20 pound gun and, and put a trigger on there that weighs, you know, 12 ounces and, and grab a bag and, and shoot little six millimeter BRs that don't, that don't even move. And, and then you're like, yeah. well, I mean, that works for this. That's cool. That works for this. But when I take that away from you and I actually yeah. give you a rifle, a practical rifle, you will not be able to replicate the same principles yeah. that you are applying here. 
However, yeah, it's the same as playing Call of Duty online. Sure. That doesn't mean you're going to be good at what you do because you can press a button and it doesn't recoil. Yeah, exactly. So, but then if I give, if I take that same guy and I develop him or her as a foundational shooter with, with good solid fundamentals, I'm able to give them any rifle and they can, they can extract the maximum potential out of that system, no matter what it is, whether it's an eight pound hunting rifle or a 20 pound Mm -hmm. plus competition rig. So it's interesting because you know, you're not, are you in, what, what is it? How are you still, uh, where are you at with, with the precision shooting world and where, where, what do you do to maintain your level of skill and proficiency? Not enough. Not enough. That's what I, <laughs> um, I go out and I shoot for enjoyment on my own. I have so many irons in the fire that I don't, not that I don't have enough time. I don't take enough time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go out and shoot, I shoot on my own. I shoot to teach some buddies. I, I, I try and, and stay relevant, but I need, I probably am due for a course just as a gut check, just to go back out and have someone else, you know, help me focus on the fundamentals. And, and we'd love to have you out, man. If you, anytime Dude, you, yeah, ever, I'd love to, let's do it. Let's just, of course. I don't, I, if anyone out there has an ego to not take a course, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to be focusing on the fundamentals. I like to joke when someone buys all that gear and thinks it's the easy button. My mm-hmm. answer is, you know, it'd be a lot cheaper just to hire me to shoot it for you. That's <laughs> if your goal is to put a bullet on that target, I'll charge you half that cost to shoot the target for you. <laughs> you, know, you. You don't have to buy all that. Um, you're absolutely right. Any analogy here works too. You try to learn you know, music. You don't buy the most expensive guitar because you think that's going to make you a better guitar player. You need to learn how to be a guitar player first. Exactly. Um, and yeah. I'm a big believer on the reason I love precision rifle shooting is I'm never going to be the best. And even if I am, I won't be the best for long, which I'm not. Um, because I can always, 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 you know, do better. I can, I can always improve. And I think that for me, the sniper side of it is comes down to what can you do now or next? So many guys focus on what they did. So for example, guys go to the range and come back and go, oh, that gun, that's a quarter minute angle gun. First off BS. I don't believe that any gun, any shooter, any ammo combination are always going to shoot a quarter minute of angle. I think that's impossible. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they went to the range, they shot 20 groups the best of the 20 groups was a quarter minute of angle. And so that's the one they remember. And so they'll come to me and show me the rifle or show me their equipment. They go, Hey, you know, this one time I did this or look what I just did. My measure of someone's ability to be a marksman is okay. Right now there's a gun. There's a target. Show me how you can hit it. Yeah. And by focusing on the fundamentals and getting good, like what you said, can pick up any rifle and make it perform better is I get laughed at for saying a minute of angle and many circumstances is plenty. If you want to come running up with your heart rate, grab a rifle and shoot off the bumper of a car and hit a five inch circle at 500 yards, that's really hard. Yeah, it is. I think it is. Yeah. And so I think being able to hit a minute of angle on demand is way more impressive than the, the pretty little tiny group. That's very true. That's, that's really true. So these are the things though, that, that you would not have come to the realization of if you weren't tested in a practical manner. So mm-hmm. You know, leaving Sodic, <clears throat> you, you go back to Ranger Battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where, did you, where did you first apply all these newfound skills? Well, so when I went back, I started sharing with the platoon, of course, with the other guys I was with. And shortly after that, we went to an amazing, again, I got so lucky with all my schools. I got to go to the French Alpine Mountaineering course. Damn. That, was a, that was a couple months in the French Alps. That was amazing. So doesn't suck. vacation, getting paid. Uh, hiking up and down some snow-covered mountains. That was cool. And then shortly after that, 9-11 happened. Right. And we were actually on a JSOC training mission when 9-11 happened. So I was in an airport hangar in England 
with some joint special forces guys as we're doing training missions and they came over the radio and told us that a plane just hit the world trade center and we all thought it was part of the training mission mm. we went okay that's off oddly specific but okay and they came back and they, they came back an hour later and said another plane hit the other world and okay well i'm taking notes here don't no, know what real. to do with that yeah they said go turn on the news idiots and we actually had to go turn on the news in the hangar and went oh my god so real. we assumed that we were right away going to go from there because you have a joint special operations contingent already overseas mm -hmm. like the group you would want to send to go do something and we sat there for a few days and came home right and then we got spun up and tried to train each other and try to get ready as much as we could and by the, I mean, maybe a month later, so still end of 2001, we were in Afghanistan and setting up Bagram, setting up doing stuff. Honestly, the most uneventful deployment ever. Right. Um, we did have some things happen. I don't mean to make it sound like we didn't. That's when Robert, Robert's Ridge happened you know, early that next year, the Battle of Takugar. Uh, we lost some good guys on that. And that was one blip in kind of boredom with everything right. else. Um, learned that a lot of our techniques weren't going to work anymore. I mean, that's the, that's the deployment when I first figured out for myself that a spotter for the sake of being a spotter was almost useless. Yep. hundred percent, man. Everybody's um, got a job and you helping me tell me where bullets, like you're basically telling me everything that I should already know. So go pick up mm -hmm. a rifle or go pick up a radio and make yourself useful. Well, one, our radios were way more powerful than our rifles. Mm -hmm. in, in, in the, in the scenarios we were, we were still open country. We weren't doing urban stuff that we were hiking up and down mountains and being out there doing actual kind of recce type stuff mm -hmm. and not shooting like everyone thinks you would be out of a war movie or something. We just did a lot of looking and a lot of using our radios, but we realized that the spotter, it's like, well, wait a minute. The spotter's the team leader for us. It's a senior guy. He's got a big glass scope and rifle malfunctions happen. Misses happen. Bad wind calls happen. Uh, targets move. We, yeah. we, you know, things happen. And we started to realize real quick, wow, what if this other guy that actually has more experience than me was also on a rifle? <laughs> and when he gave me a half mil left wind call and I shot and I gave him immediate feedback that it was a good shot. So the bullet impact is something on which he could rely. Wouldn't it be cool if he could just adjust and shoot? Exactly. Or I'm reloading, re-getting into position, refining the target, redoing everything. We're just like, well, that goes out the window. So we started changing a lot of things after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, Afghanistan deployment, and then where where else were you able to utilize your skills uh, in the world? Uh, well, so came back, tried to train up a bunch of guys since then. So we started doing some good cross training with the regular line guys, which was great. I got to go to the range almost as a uh, ambassador, if you will, from the sniper section with the regular line guys and just work on fundamentals of marksmanship, helping them zero their rifles. So many guys just don't understand the concept of why they zero something a certain way or what's really happening with a bullet. I mean, there's still guys in the military that think a bullet actually rises when it comes out of the barrel. They don't understand. So just the basics, you know, trying to teach guys, get everyone better altogether. And we quickly deployed again. The Ranger Battalion has been deployed ever since 9-11 nonstop. Mm -hmm three months on three months off or six months off three months on because there's three battalions mm -hmm. so it's been a continuous cycle so we had six months and then we were back again i went back to afghanistan a second time uh did a lot more stuff over there came back iraq was just starting to get going mm -hmm. and my ets date was coming up and i had a decision to make i was like well do i make a career out of this or do i get out now and right at the time i heard uh phil talk about this on another one of your podcasts about I was about to be promoted out of a job. If I re-enlisted, they offered me my E6. Mm. And 
part of me did the math. I'm like, well, if you're going to give me my E6 after four years, that means I'm going to be in another 16 to get promoted a couple more times. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like that math. Yeah. And to be a staff NCO meant that I would become part of the antenna farm. I would actually give up a rifle. Yeah. That doesn't sound very fun. And Iraq doesn't sound very fun. Uh, Tempe, Arizona State University in Tempe sounded a lot more fun. <laughs> so I uh, said, well, guys, it's been great. The party's been fun. I had a, I, I, I had a good time while I'm here. So I, I, I took off. I, I ETS'd. Uh, ended up having a stop loss. I don't know if you guys are listening know what a stop loss is, but it's when the, army, you know, the military comes down and says nobody else is getting out. I had a stop loss come down two days before my ETS date. I had everything turned into CIF. Well, you, know, you had all my gear turned in. I was actually showing up to formation in flip-flops. Like I was ready to go home. Totally. And they, I think they had a pool going on how many people I was going to shoot because they knew my mind I was ready to go. And through an amazing loophole, nobody in SOCOM could be stop-loss. So I found out I got to go home after all. Oh, all right. Oh, I, I actually drove away from the base with all the offices closed down. I remember waving and thinking, am I supposed to be leaving? This feels really weird because everything was shut down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I went, went back to Arizona, uh, went back to school, took it much more serious this time, which I'm glad I did, and quickly got a job teaching at a government-contracted sniper school out there in Phoenix. There was a sniper school out there. There's just it's a private company that ran out there, but they had a lot of contracts for military units would come out and get training. Actually, the second bat guys would come down. 101st would come there. A lot of the feds would come to this training course and learned so much more about shooting at that course than I ever think I did in the military. Right. Okay. So the stuff what, I learned was, was the that, basics. Was but Was that GPS defense? That was, yeah. Dan yeah. Herman and I, yeah. You, you know Dan? Dan and I were the two instructors. Oh man. Okay. So, uh, Dan, Dan and I also go way back too. Yeah. He was uh, like the high angle course way back. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so he was, while well, he was teaching there, he'd come down to our schoolhouse at uh, Camp Pendleton and, you know, we'd check uh -huh. in once in a while. And, um, I still keep in touch with Dan periodically on the Facebook machine. And, um, that was another, it was, you know, just such a, a crazy time of learning and growth and expansion mm -hmm. and discovery and going, Whoa, wait a minute. Like this stuff doesn't work the way that the old, the old guy said it would work. So now we got to figure it out. We got to figure out. How to exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, or what's good enough. I actually lost my quote unquote precision edge as an instructor. I got more towards dude, this works. Just do it. Sure. And I used to, I used to over explain things or oversimplify things and say, Guys, I don't care if there were shapes on your elevation turret and somehow you learned that turning to triangle means you hit that target. Just turn to triangle and hit the target. Exactly. And later, let's figure out why. Because they would sit there and they'd get this analysis paralysis on what's going on. And they'd have, you know, wind meters out and, and paper and doing math and calculators and trying to figure it out all while the target's sitting there. Hey, guys, shoot the dang target. Dude. Well, I know, but it's two minutes more than it should have been. But then shoot it and then record it and later try to figure it out. Yeah, you know? exactly. You know, so I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about teaching and through teaching, I learned how to make things simpler for people. I learned how to break it down to Barney level. You know, you have, I have a few, you know, types of students that would show up. You'd have some students that would come, want to come beat their chest and I'm better than you and my pedigree is better than you. Why am I learning from you? Yeah. And if I heard, had a couple of those, I'd say, you're right. You're cooler than me. All right. Is that settled? All right. I want to make you better. Yeah. At the time, Tiger Woods was the best golfer in the world. And we used to use him as an example and say, Hey dude, who's the best golfer in the world? And they'd go Tiger Woods. I'm like, okay, did you know Tiger Woods trains every day with the coach? They go, yeah. I said, well, if Tiger is the best, that means his coach must not be as good as him. 
but yet he can still learn from that coach. So how about you let me be your coach and get over there. And we had this drill that we called the LAPD drill and we'd have him start from the standing position. We'd give him six rounds at a hundred yards and we'd do a face size target. So a steel target. So maybe six, eight inch circle. Mm -hmm. My head's a lot bigger. So maybe a 10 inch circle if it was me. And they would, uh, we'd give them 60 seconds and they drop to a knee and shoot two rounds, drop to their butt and shoot two rounds and drop to their elbows on the prone and shoot two rounds. No bipods, no anything, just holding the rifle. And it was amazing how many of these extremely high pedigree resume snipers with amazing rigs and equipment would maybe get three out of the six rounds. Yeah. And I loved to walk over to my, my truck at the time and pull out a Romanian Wasser 10 AK and clean it with wolf ammo and clean it in 30 seconds. And yeah. guys, so what's the difference here? And I'd work with them and get them to focus only on the fundamentals again and put the calculator away and put everything else away and say, how are you operating that trigger? How are you holding that rifle? What are you doing to make this work or not? And getting them to get better that way, that was great. And just learned a lot about teaching and a lot about theory out there. It was great. So that's one thing. I'm glad that you touched on that because I think that we've seen a radical departure um, from uh, with the with the advent of technology. Mm -hmm. So we started to see, uh, I remember uh, like 2001-ish, 2002-ish when the first ATRAG uh, PDA showed up. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, yeah, we had the, the horse, horse Vision, yep. all that, yeah. Because, and, and so it landed in the Marine Corps, the, this, the Dat Wong guys had, they got a 408 Shytech and they were about ready to deploy with this thing and they were like, yo dude, I, don't, I have no idea what this thing is. It is not an M40, it shoots a really big ass bullet and it's not a 50 cal and we have no data for this thing. So, you know, we started to see when that, when that ballistic solver came in, I was already starting to play around with the Sierra program and trying to, what I was trying to do was cut down the time it took me to get data for students um, on known distance. Mm -hmm. So that way we could get them more refined firing solutions with less ammunition and less time spent. So that way we could focus on other things. Mm -hmm. And, and that really is truly like where I believe the intention was with that technology, but then it rapidly progressed to this point where, well, um, well, if you don't have a PDA and you don't have a Kestrel, you can't shoot. And that got bad. Like that got really bad, really fast. And I remember going to a couple of courses as an observer and as an observer and watching dudes like with a, with a, with a, a 2010, an M2010. Mm -hmm. 800 meter Iron Maiden, freaking things 20 inches wide by 40 inches tall, 800 meters, and dude sends a round down range and impacts three tenths of a mil below the bottom edge of the target. And the guy behind the spotting scope has got a Kestrel in one hand and a friggin' PDA in another, and his eyeball in the spotting scope lens, and he's like paralyzed. He's that paralysis by analysis, what you mm -hmm. just said right there. That was awesome mm -hmm. because we say the same thing. And this guy was so afraid to give him an adjustment. And I listened to the adjustment. He's like, yeah, uh, come up, come up point three. And I'm like, oh, no, that's an edge hit. <laughs> so he, and he missed. And I was yeah. like, I guarantee you that ball is. And he hit the very bottom of the target again. It's like, dude, like, oh, I don't understand because. You that's what I mean. They don't freak out about why it happened. Exactly. You just make the, the You're a third of a mil low. How much to the center of the target? Don't adjust me to the edge of the target. Adjust me to the center. Make a bold adjustment. Shoot and hit. Right. Congratulations. That, Target's dead. Now we can figure it out. What, it, what I see students, what they do is they'll, is they'll look at that, they'll look at that 
that ballistic computer program and they'll, and they're, their first thing, well, that's not right. It's not right. And it's like, who cares if it's not right? We'll fix that later. The bullet just lived in the air, man. It's told you everything that you need to know. Mm-hmm. So correct off of that. And mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely a, a push um, to, to, to get kind of back to that hard data, um, the hard data roots and people start are starting to now go, okay, well, there is something to this because hard data is really important because that technology is not going to be there unless you have time and opportunity to use it. We completely agree. Uh, I, to add a little to that is it's not just, it's not the old trope of, hey, you, before you use a GPS, you need to learn how to use a map and a compass. I agree with that. That's true. You need to actually understand what's going on. And I also understand that you're not always going to have the technology and batteries fail and things break. And that's another good reason for it. My reason for it is you don't understand what's going on. Right. I, I, I live in the Nashville area. We moved here a few years ago. And I'll admit I'm guilty of this. I have the GPS on my phone when I drive places. I've been to places in my town that my wife knows how to get to. And she laughs at me. I mean, we're going to the movie theater with the kids. Oh, go to the movie theater over here. Okay. I put up my GPS and she goes, you really don't know how to get there? I'm, I'm admitting a fault here, guys. I should know it's five minutes or 10 minutes away. But the problem is it's not that I need to rely on the GPS, which is wrong. It is. It's not that, well, Ryan, what's going to happen if you don't have that GPS? That's also part of it too. The other problem is I couldn't point exactly to the movie theater from where I'm at. I don't even understand the concept of where it's laid out in the town because that one road curves and is over there. That's my problem is not understanding the bigger picture of what's going on. Like you said, when he misses low, he can't look at it and say, don't know why it did that, but it did. I like how you say it lived in the air. You just got a free wind call. That's exactly what the wind is going to do to that bullet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly what that, that elevation adjustment is going to do. Once you adjust off that, they just don't understand the concept. I love going to the range and seeing guys. I'm going to sound like I'm against technology. I'm not. I think it's the greatest reason why we are such better shooters now than we were 20 years ago. Um, my problem with technology is I go to the range and I see a guy plot all his gear. And while he's swearing to me why the technology is so great, he's busy with his finger in his phone right? Oh, this, this stuff's amazing. It works every time. Check this out. And these bullets and this here. Okay. And he gets it all figured out. And I'm sitting there for three to five minutes watching him fiddle with his software. Then he makes an adjustment on his rifle to finally shoot and he misses by a lot. Mm-hmm. And then he sits up and he goes, huh, that's weird. And he goes back to his phone. He goes, well, hold on. Let me see the settings here. And then he spends another three to five minutes figuring it out. Then he tries it again and go, what's wrong? And he goes, oh, at the setting, I had it set to station pressure. That's what it was. Or I had it set then he figures it out and then he makes a hit and goes, see, isn't that amazing? <laughs> Buddy, that was 12 to 15 minutes of you forcing it to be amazing. I'd be more impressed if, I mean, the M2010, that was 300 wind mag, right? Yep. An 800 meter shot on a, on a E-type of 300 wind mag, you should just be able to pick it up and hold and do it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I like to joke, I put this in my book that I'm not against the technology, but people that rely on it too much, I'm never going to be in a Hollywood sniper, counter sniper scenario. Mm-hmm. But if I am, I hope that guy is reliant on technology because I'm going to shoot him through his PDA, <laughs> right? Because he's going to be sitting there looking at what to do while I crank off around and go, wow, that was two feet low, adjust up two feet and shoot again. Yeah. And within 20 seconds, I'm going to get a hit on the target. That's how I look at it. That's, that's, I mean, there, there's the, the practical side of it. And then we have to be able to delineate what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you brought up your book and I want to, I want to, I want to ask you about your book and mainly I want to ask you like, cause writing a book is not a small undertaking. 
Okay. No, it's not a small, my wife wrote a book and I watched her write, go through that process. And it was just like, wow, it's super in depth. There's a lot of stress involved. You know, you have to really get in touch with your own ego in order to write a book effectively. Um, and talk to me about what inspired your book and talk to me about that process of writing it and what, what your intention was. Okay, sure. Uh, one, the easiest answer was I wanted to write a book before I died. I just thought that was a cool thing to say I did as I wrote a book. I've always wanted that to have happened. And right then I was leaving Remington at the time. So I had just moved out of the Northeast, moved down to the South as part of a deal to, I did a, a one year exit from Remington. And as part of the deal on my way out I was going to help them set up in Huntsville. And so I was getting paid to sit on the sidelines out of the firearms community. Okay. So I was getting an awesome chance to sit at home for a few months. I thought, well, this is the time to do it when I can't go be a lawyer which is what I do for the firearms industry. I can't go do that anyway for now, so might as well do the book. I sat down to write it and I, I really struggled to start because I didn't know what tone or style or voice I was gonna use in the book. And I know that might sound corny to some people, but it really matters. It does matter, um, that's huge. I did some videos for the NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation when I worked there. They had me come down and just film some videos during the workday one time. And they're just talking head videos of me breaking down some simple concepts, Barney style. And they were more popular than we thought they were going to be. And people received them well. And that's when I realized, you know, a lot of the guys out there at the time, this is what, four years ago now, still kind of true, are badge protectors. I don't know if that means anything to Absolutely. civilians. But they're guys that want to say, this is so tough. This is so complicated. Look how awesome I am that I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I've actually caught people explaining things. I swear I've caught them, I should say that they're explaining things more complicated than it needs to be to make themselves sound cooler. Yeah, I calculate the spin of the earth and I do this and I do that. I'm like, well, spin of the earth actually does matter, but you're gonna pull the shot more and make a worse a wind call wrong that's gonna make it matter way more. Exactly. And unless you can tell me your exact latitude and cardinal direction, don't, don't fool me with all this stuff that you're making you seem cooler than you are. So I realized that so many guys were trying to protect this community of long range that I'm too cool and you're not cool enough to be me. And then I also saw that my videos breaking it down with a style of guys, anybody can do this. It's just the basics, get started, go have fun. That was well received. So I decided I was going to be the guy that wrote a book that said, anybody can do this. I'm not the best. I'm not claiming to be the best. I'm not claiming to make you the best, but I'm going to write to the person that just wants to learn the basics and wants to be encouraged and not be scared of getting into long range shooting. So I wrote, sat down and knocked it out in a few months and it, took a lot of work to get it done. It was scary to get done. I mean, I actually, so I reached out to publishers, Kalen. Mm -hmm. Every publisher I reached out to turned me down. Yeah. Uh, they either didn't respond at all or a couple responded and said, nah, no, we're not interested. Thanks. I'm like, well, shoot, what do I do now? So I figured out that you can self-publish things. Mm -hmm. All right, I want to self-publish this thing. And within a couple months, the publishers came running back. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, can we publish your book now? No, Sorry. get lost. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing this on my own now. Um, but do you want again? No, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I, there was one, I, I feel a little guilty about doing, but there was one publisher. They weren't rude, but they just were definitely stiff armed me on it. And then they came running back and they offered me, yeah, like a fourth that you can make on your own self-publishing. And this is, I did let my ego get in the way as the guy was talking to me on the phone. He said some kind of thing like, well, you're only gonna be able to do so much on your own anyway. What do you think you were? We're a publishing company. I said, well, hold on. And I pulled up Amazon 
like your best book is in this place and my book is in this place. So what are you going to do for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's been great. Uh, the reason I think it's, it's taken off like it did is because people are cool. People weren't afraid to support me, which I appreciate. It's not that the book's that great. It's just the basics. Yeah. So, and, and so there's obviously we all talk about the beauty, the beauty lies in the basics. And mm -hmm. I think you bring up a really good point there. And that's something that, that I think uh, a lot of people fall victim to is this, this promise of, well, that guy, they're talking about all of this super science stuff over here. And mm -hmm. so um, like, as an example, like military clients, well, if we want to go learn about theory, we go to this instructor. If we want to go learn about foundational fundamental marksmanship principles, we go to this instructor. And, mm -hmm. and it's good to get a, a rounded approach. I get that. But at the same time, you guys that are listening, man, you have to have your radar up. You got to be looking for the, you got to be looking for that, you know, that snake oil sales stuff. That's like trying to get you to buy into something because you know, you're getting baffled by a bunch of numbers or fast mm -hmm. talk or um, you know, dude, make a win call, put a bullet in the air and adjust. I mean, obviously we always want first round hits. The closer I can get that bullet to the center of the mm -hmm. target on the first shot, even if I do miss the better chance I have of a second round connection, because we all know that the, if I, yeah. if I miss by like a mil and a half on that first shot, well, the chances of me getting a second round connection are pretty slim because of all the other factors that are happening with that big. Yeah. But so don't get I agree with you mm -hmm. by a bunch of craziness. Right. So if it sounds like, if it sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, it, probably is you know it's that old saying if it, you know if it looks like a duck it swims like a duck it's probably a duck so that's that's good to hear that, that you're saying that so well yeah what, so you, you know steve martin the actor comedian yeah there's a video clip i've seen of him promoting one of his uh online courses speaking of online courses you know i'm a student of yours so I'm, i, I'm, I appreciate I'm that man. dude I, why wouldn't i still want to sign up and learn from you of course i would so he was doing this promo video and he said he gets asked all the time, how do I get an agent or how do I write better this or how do I do this for my jokes and how do I do all these kind of things, all these advanced topics. And he looks back at the camera and he says, why aren't you worried about how to get good first? Ooh. And yeah. even though that's not shooting, that's, yeah. that statement sticks with me is totally. I have people ask me all the time, how do I calculate for, for this and the, the BC of the bullet for this here? I was like, you know, why don't we focus on becoming a good shooter first? Yeah. And I don't think enough people do that and focus on the basics. And my biggest test on a good shooter is if somebody does something wrong, they can recognize that they did something wrong mm -hmm. and work on fixing it. I'm way more impressed with that shooter than somebody who performs well and has no idea why. That's very true. So if I have a shooter that hits a target, I say, what did you do right there? They say, I don't know. I just hit. Not impressed. But yeah. if they jerk the trigger and they miss, they go, dang, I jerked the trigger to the right. Oh my goodness. I, I will give way more kudos to the student that jerks the trigger to the right and knows they jerked it to the right. You know, so yeah. they know what they did wrong and how to fix it than someone that doesn't know what they're doing. The, the funny thing is that, you know, I, I do spend uh, some time in the precision rifle uh, com competitive space and, you know, schedules preclude schedules and obviously work, work comes first. And, and I look at that as it, it's, it is play, but at the same time it is work because mm -hmm. That's where a lot of developments of technology and, and, you know, practical skills application come from. And I go to shooting matches so that I can look at what's relevant in the community right now, see what the state of the, you know, the current state of the art is doing 
And that way I can, you know, better serve my students by, by maintaining relevance. And I'm going to different areas in the world or different areas in the United States. And I'm able to adapt to those, uh, to those conditions, right? It's because I'm a hunter, like my, my end state outside of professional uh, development, my end state as a rifleman is I'm a mountain hunter. I hunt up in the mountains and the conditions are, anything other than normal like it normal is abnormal up there and so i want to get the most amount of experience that i possibly can but i go to these things man and i hear i hear so much so much talk about things like well you know i hit 95 percent of the targets but yet i'm still like you'll hear some guy oh, i'm chasing dope and it's like dude you're not chasing shit if you're hitting 95 percent of the targets that's you and that is you not being able to come to grips with the fact that, hey, that 5% of the targets that you missed, you just pressed the trigger when you shouldn't have. That's all that is. And, if, and once you can get over that and you can recognize that mm -hmm. uh, with an acknowledgement of self, man, that's what's going to take you to the next level. And, and really, that's, uh, we have all of this technology now, but it's more technology means more things to blame. Right. It's more things to be like, ah, oh, well, I heard somebody say that, uh, you know, their muzzle velocity sped up and that's what caused them to miss a 500 yard Ipsic silhouette. And I'm like, mm. nah, man, nah, <laughs> I don't care if your muzzle velocity sped up 200 feet a second with that bullet that you're shooting. It's not going to matter at that mm -hmm. distance. Now, if we're talking about a grand or 1500, that's a different story. But it's just we, we can't look at this as something to blame anything on other than ourselves uh, in terms of like how we're interacting with the rifle and how we're interfacing. I spend a ton of time at the hundred yard line working on foundational mm -hmm. fundamental skills. And usually in our courses, we don't let guys off the hundred yard line for the first day because I want to make sure that not only do I want to make sure that you're shooting well, but I also want to make sure that I'm teaching you the diagnostic tools that you can utilize on your own in the discovery learning process. And we take you off the paper and we put you on steel. So that way you understand, okay, well, if this, then that, right. If this yeah. happens, that's the result or vice versa, right. If that happens, then it's this. And so that's the, that's our philosophy. That's my philosophy anyways, when it comes to, when it comes to training shooters, because I can't be there you know, I can't see what you see. I can't feel what you feel and I can't think what you think. Mm -hmm. um, we actually have a really cool new tool out. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, it's called the trigger cam. And oh it's, yeah. It's great, great for teaching. It's awesome. It's, it's literally a game changer. So now I can actually take a problem student and mm -hmm. say, all right, I'm put this thing on here. Now I get to see what your sight picture looks like the instant that the rifle goes bang. And we can really take that diagnostic level to take it to the next level. And, and mm -hmm. say, okay, well, now we have a visual idea of what's actually happening. Yeah, so no matter how inaccurate the rifle is, no matter how bad of a rusted piece of junk you picked up at a garage sale is, you are the most inaccurate part of the system. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, the junkiest rifle, the junkiest ammo, the junkiest scope, the junkiest everything, no matter how good of a shooter, Kalen, you when I put that rifle in your hands, you are the variable that causes the most inaccuracy out of all of that. Mm -hmm. Because I can bolt any rifle into a vice and it's going to shoot better than it does in my hands. Mm -hmm. 
And so working on yourself at the 100 yards, figuring out what you're doing, and this goes back to what we are just talking about technology. I'm not against the technology, but if you rely upon it, you don't really understand what you're doing when you're up on that mountain hunt and you're shooting at this weird angle when you're completely fatigued at a different elevation and temperature and you see a big fat branch above your line of sight. You actually know what's going on with your rifles. You're like, oh my gosh, my bullet's going to hit that thing. Or the software doesn't. The software doesn't tell you that the bullet's going to hit that thing, right. you know, or, or knowing where to place the shot or when to take it, or even just, man, I'm not shooting that mountain goat. I'm gonna have to hike up for the next three days to try and get that thing. <laughs> just, just the judgment in knowing what you're doing and being well-rounded. So, don't mistake this, anybody. That I'm saying, don't use technology. Use it. It's amazing. It mm-hmm. allows you to understand what's going on. Just, I ask people, if you're measuring something or using something to try and shoot better understand why you're measuring it or what you're using. So for example, if I, I make the, the joke in my book also about taking air samples and Ziploc baggies, you know, guys that get like way too in the minutia. And if I, I see them writing something down, like the sun position, I think the sun position does matter. Some guys will have scope shadow and adjust for it. And so I'm not saying these variables don't matter. What I'm saying is when I see guys writing it down, I love to walk up and go, Hey, why, why'd you write that down? I go, what do you mean? I was told that matters. Yeah, but what are you going to do with that information? Mm-hmm. If you're not going to use that information to, ch- to make a judgment decision the next time you shoot, right? maybe we should stop recording it. Maybe we yeah. should focus on the fundamentals. We do see, we just see that a lot, um, uh, a lot in law enforcement, law enforcement stuff. That's another, unfortunately, that's a community that- Well, they do that like crazy. You're right. Uh, it's, it's, that's any community that suffers from dogmatic thought process and yeah. old information. It's that community. And we, we're really, I'm, I'm super passionate about making sure that, 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 that that gap between that community and our community is bridged yeah. and it maintains a good solid connection because, you know, those, those guys are doing a really, really difficult job. Mm-hmm. It's difficult from the standpoint of a technical, technical aspect of it. It's difficult from the standpoint of uh, a mindset aspect of it. And even though that the ranges are generally really, really short, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that excuse when I hear the guys say that. Or yeah. average engagement range, I don't care. You still need to be responsible for that bullet. Exactly. And, and you can't just use the excuse of, oh, well, I didn't know, or mm-hmm. you know, it's just this or it's just that. It doesn't, that does not fly. I mean, you are literally being responsible for protecting the lives of Americans. And that's it, mm-hmm. period. And, and, and that's something that it's looking at it being a military sniper it's like dude i don't i don't want your job man that's crazy like that's a lot of that's a lot of stress and i have a lot of conversations with guys um one in particular recently that that called me and talked to me about a scenario and he's like dude i don't know i don't know what to do what would you have done in this scenario we chop we kind of like tdg tactical decision gamed it out and and it really got me thinking i was like there's a lot of complexity in this and um, if you don't sure. have the proper tools ingrained in you already from a fundamental standpoint with running your rifle, dude, you're batting a thousand, man. That's like not a position that I would ever want to be in. Well, imagine now having to, having all that going through your head, all these decisions, all these variables, and now bad guy all of a sudden is double the distance yep. and your phone went to sleep exactly. and now you're reaching down and trying to unlock your phone because you don't know what to do. Yeah. When the distance went from 75 to 150, there are guys I know that would panic instead of just going, uh, why don't you aim about that much higher and call it a day? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. It, it's, I, I, I also am I'm nervous, not nervous. I, I worry 
for the law enforcement community because of the disparity of training standards. Mm-hmm. You know, I see some departments, the guy they call the sniper is the one that had the hunting rifle with a scope on it. Oh, yeah. You see and that. in some cases, the guy they call the sniper, I could just sit there and learn from all day. You know, so just the standard being all over the place makes, makes me a little nervous, but I'm glad they're out there learning. And I just yeah. ask the people listening, take even some of my oversimplified analogies to heart. You know, don't, don't record things that you're not going to use. Mm-hmm. Maybe Kalen records some of the stuff because he's going to use it. It's going to make a difference for him. But if it's not going to matter to you and you could spend more time on the range getting better, do that. If your scope is good enough, instead of spending another $1,000 and get an even better scope, maybe spend $1,000 on training. Yeah. You know, become, become a good shooter first, then worry about everything else. 100%, man. 100%. So what, what is the name of your book, Ryan? It's, it's a really simple title. The Long Range Shooting Handbook. Long Range Shooting Handbook. That's, that's all you yeah. it's, a bright, it's a bright orange cover. I, I made it that way because I wanted it to be for, you take it to the range with you as like a reference manual. The first third of it is really dry and slow. It's here's the front of a scope. Here's the top of a scope. This is what this part is called. And then, so I break it down to the three categories. The first third is what it is. The second third is how it works. And the, the last third is how to use it. That's so, awesome, man. That's a really good way of looking at that. Um, you know, we, we found the same thing, or I found the same thing with the Circle of Components course, the one, the, the recent course yep. we put out. And people just will not come to that class. They won't come to it. We put it out there and it's like, nobody wants to, nobody wants to, to spend that time or think that they need to spend that time working on understanding all of the components that go into your rifle or yeah. your precision shooting system. Because they think and it's beneath them. It's, or it's too basic. But then I got, I still have people showing up to courses with scope bases coming loose. You know, and yeah, stuff like that. And I just, get it, dude. So taking that approach with that circle of components clinic or that circle of components course, you know, it's a lot to it's a lot to digest. But at the same time, it's like if you take that time to spend now, even though it seems super mundane, man, it's going to pay off in the long run when you know. For sure how frustrating is that to have to shoot? And then, you know, the very next day you, you, you grab your, your scopes rattling loose and you're like, man, no, well, that's where all those flyers are coming from. Mm-hmm. You're in the moment, you're thinking about things you don't really understand what to look for. And then all of a sudden, bam, it bites you. And then that 50, 60 rounds that you spent at the range, it's kind of wasted, you know, at that point it's, it's yeah. kind of wasted. Um, so, you know, the- I'm working on the uh, sequel right now. Are you really book. cool? And my concern is I have a chapter in there that I don't know if I should leave in or not. Okay. And the chapter says, this book is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the chapter one is firearm safety. Chapter two is this book is not for you. And I, I hesitate even t- talking about it now as I'm thinking about it because I don't want to come across wrong. I'm right. trying to be half funny and half make a point. I don't want to come across like a jerk. But so many people skip the first one because it says a beginner's guide to long range shooting. Mm-hmm. And I have guys that know their stuff. Uh, I did Kyle's Kyle Lamb's podcast recently and he said something really nice about the book. He said the only change he would make is take the word beginner off the cover mm. because people can learn from it. And I have great feedback from guys that didn't have an ego enough to actually pick it up and read it. They learned something, at least one thing they learned or a new way of thinking about something. And I'm concerned that when the second one comes out, they're going to say, Oh, the advanced one, I'll take that one. So the whole chapter actually 
lays out some of the basic principles from the first book and I put a quiz in it, which is why I might delete it because it's kind of a jerk thing to do. I put a 20 question quiz in there that says, can you explain how this works to me? Right. Can you understand the difference of this and this? And it's not just gotcha questions like trivia questions. It's really, do, do you understand the concept yeah. of what an angular measurement is and how it, it's no, you know, can you explain that to yourself? And I go through all these and at the very end of all 20 questions and I give the answers and explanations. I say, maybe you need to take a hard look at yourself. And if you answered all these, continue reading. If you haven't, go get the other book. Sure. But I'm thinking about deleting it just because I don't know if it'll be as well received as I hope it would be. But the point remains is what you're making now is stop racing to the advanced stuff. Yeah. Get the basics first. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always, I had a saying uh, that I started using way back in the day and it's just people are too busy trying to learn the tricks of the trade before they learn the trade itself. That's, exa- that's the Steve Martin quote. Why don't you learn about being good first? Yeah. You know, or try to teach it. That's why I learned so much. I, I told you I learned so much from teaching is um, you ever use the how to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich example on how to train a trainer? No, no, no. Yeah. Right, it's not mine. I've learned it from other people and I use it all the time. So at the end of our, some of our courses, we would do instructor development courses and try and teach some of these LE guys or how to be better teachers. And one of the reasons teaching something makes you learn it so much better is you have to figure out how to break it down into building blocks and stop and go, well, you know, this point I'm making fourth, I shouldn't make fourth. I should have made that first because they need to understand that first. It really makes you process how it goes together. And the peanut butter and jelly sandwich example is you stand in front of students, especially like the law enforcement snipers, and you take a, a whole loaf of bread, a butter knife, a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jelly. You say, okay, we're going to go do a class on how to make a peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Would anyone like to be a first volunteer and tell me what the first step is? Just go and shout it out. What's the first step to make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And someone will say, uh, put the peanut butter on the bread. Got it. So I take the jar of peanut butter and you smash the bread with it. You go on the bread. And they say, no, you got to open the, the bag of bread first. Got it. So you got grab the, the bag and you yank it and let the bread just go flying everywhere. You rip <laughs> it open. And I, go, I open the, the bag of bread. They go, no, not that. Grab one slice. So I pick it up and I smash it and I put it in a ball. I'm like, no, not like that. Oh, so maybe we need to say, first, we need to open up the bread by undoing the twisty tie at the end and reaching in the end and grab, pulling out two slices of bread. Yep. Oh, that, like that sounds okay. oversimplified, but you have to understand that. For example, okay, peanut butter on the bread, really? Next, we're going to open the jar of peanut butter by unscrewing the lid yep. and using the butter knife, spread this amount of peanut butter on the bread. Oh, Getting it to that level helps you understand it so well. If you can't under- explain what a certain angular adjustment would mean at a certain distance, or you can't explain to me what BC is, and I don't mean trivia ballistic coefficient. Right. I don't mean giving me the gotcha trivia answer. I'm saying just giving me the concept of what this thing is. If you can't explain that to me in a way that Barney level understanding, then you should stop trying to worry about the tricks. You should understand that first. That is, a, that is an amazing point, man. And, and- I really, I love that analogy. That's a ma- that's a great way to illustrate how to turn somebody into a teacher. You know, Phil and I have these conversations all the time about like, okay, what's the difference between an instructor and a teacher? An instructor is just a regurgitator, right? An instructor is mm-hmm. like, ah, well, the definition of parallax is the apparent movement of the reticle across the face of the target. Blah 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 blah. It's like, well, no shit. I can read that out of a book. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you're not teaching me anything that I. Talk to me about how parallax works. Talk to me about what's actually happening and how can it hurt my accuracy. Get into the weeds. Make it your own. Yeah. Don't be a regurgitator. And I'm big on the so what too. So let's say you did teach me parallax well. You explained the concept to me. You gave me good examples. 
you saw I was confused at certain spots. So you rephrased those sections you gave me and you, you figured out that you transferred your understanding of parallax from your brain into my brain. And we had that communicate that we had that connection. Great. If you didn't end it with the, so what though, I think people still failed, you know? So I, I think, so when someone teaches me something or they say something, I say, okay, great. So what? They say, what do you mean? I said, well, you just told me what parallax is. So what now? Sure. So what do I, what do I do with parallax? Okay. I understand parallax. I understand how to adjust it. I understand the positive and negative effects. And why does this matter? Yep. Okay. While we're sharing facts with each other, uh, my grandma's left-handed. Any other facts we want to share with each other? Like, like what does that have to do with my shooting right now? Yeah. So if you don't actually relate it to, I'm going to help solve this problem with you, or this, this, this is what parallax is. And mm -hmm. this is the problems it can have. So you know that sometimes when you're doing this, this, and this with your shooting, this can be the result. Well, now that you understand what parallax is and you understand how to correct for it, yep. now we can not only diagnose problems, we can mitigate those problems because we're going to adjust for it. Yeah. Just that last end, that, that so what takeaway that I would rather the person know. I would rather a student leave learning something with me and saying, there's something weird with the reticle and the target and how they line up. And this knob right here, if I turn it like this, it makes that problem go away. I would way rather someone say that then give me the dictionary definition of parallax and have no idea how to apply it to the real life. hundred percent. That, that's, that's my soul. What side is that's a okay, great. great. You just, you just rattled something off. Man, we should do, we should do a course together. We <laughs> should do, do it, a course together I'd love to. and teach some, teach, teach a joint course. That'd be a lot of fun. Cause I think, um, you know, just, and for you guys that are listening, how many times Ryan have we chatted before this once or twice on the phone? Yeah. That? That, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, this is where, you know, you have these, uh, so, okay. Another case in point with Cody, you know, Cody Carroll. I do. Mm -hmm. So the first class ever that Cody and I taught together, we went to Boston and, uh, we, we trained, uh, the Boston SWAT snipers. It was a, okay. it was a blast. We had a, we had a shit ton of fun. It was a lot. Of, yeah. it, was, it was awesome. But like three days into that package, I had never, I had never taught with Cody before. I, that was literally the, I mean, I had spoken to him on the phone and right. people are just like, man, you guys, you guys drive well together. And I looked at Cody and I was like, should we tell him? <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, uh, sure. In typical Cody drive. Fashion. I was just, that was, that was a perfect Cody yeah. impersonation. <laughs> I was like, I've never taught with this guy before we showed up here with you guys on day one. And they're like, no way. It's just, it, it, you have, when you have that, uh, when you have that baseline, that background, mm -hmm. um, and you, you're both on the same way, same wavelength and the same frequency of, of communicating information. Um, and you have the same values of what you're trying mm -hmm. to, what you're trying to get to at the very end goal, man, that stuff just flows and it's seamless. And so I think it would be awesome, man. Let's, let's, let's do it. We, we'd sell it out. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. People ask me to teach and I don't teach enough. So, so what, so before we, before we wrap this up, Ryan, so yep. talk to, talk to us about what it is that, that Ryan Kleckner's got going on. Um, talk to us about gun university, uh, and, and where we can find out more about what it is that you do. Well, thanks man. Um, I do too many things right now, which is why I haven't finished that second book. <laughs> I, I'm a firearms attorney by trade, but I don't, I'm not an attorney very much because being an attorney is not very fun. So I do represent FFLs and firearms manufacturers and things like that. But I also run things like Rocket FFL. I started my toe into online courses was helping people get their FFLs at home. So that does great 
of people wanting to learn more about ATF compliance or how to get an FFL out of their house and how to be a manufacturer. Okay. You go check out Rocket FFL. I do the courses for that. Uh, I'm not even going to mention all the other ones. There's too many other things I had going on of different websites and different projects. And I realized I needed a hub for everything. Cause when I appear on a podcast like this and I try to like plug every single thing I can do. So we made gun university and gun university is we're trying to make it. It's just getting started. It's doing great so far. We love it. It is information reviews, education, all sorts of things you could possibly want to know about firearms with no sponsorships and no ads. Mm -hmm. So we actually give bad grades. There's a couple F's already on gun reviews on the website. There's some D's, there's some C minuses. We actually give them letter grades, you know, like the university thing. We've got you to be a part of it now, Kaylin. We're excited to try and give reviews. And we just want that real unbiased information. If something's bad, say it's bad. If something's good, say it's good. And having a resource for people to get more training and more online, awesome. Come check us out. And if you want to know any project I'm dealing with, you'll find books and everything else right there at gununiversity.com. Yeah, we're, we're excited, man. Um, as, as, uh, you know, we discussed, um, having the, the online training stuff. And, and for those of you guys, I mean, we've gotten a couple of messages that are like, yo, dude, I've tried to do the online thing and it's like, it's hard. And it is, it's, it's a lot of stuff that goes into making an online training package or an online training curriculum. And to be truth, truth be told, like, I didn't realize how in-depth it was until, I got into the meat and potatoes and I was like, Oh, what oh, all of this, like on mm-hmm. top of the regular curriculum development that I do. So we're working through it and um, we're going to start writing for, I'm going to start writing for gun university uh, as soon as I can get some breathing room here. And I apologize for my tardiness on that. <laughs> we're not, we're not worried about it, brother. Just having you be part of the team is cool. I'm, I'm excited. I think it's going to be great. And, and so we're all about the spread of the information. I tell people like, they're like, well, what is modern day sniper? And I'm like, we're just in the business of communication. That's all we're here to mm-hmm. do. And so if we can spread that communication out and gain more, more reach, that's what we want to do because we're all about spreading information. So um, man, this was, this was great, man. This is a great conversation and, uh, I'm looking forward to having some more conversations with you in the future. And I'm not kidding, man. Let's try to get something put together, um, uh, in, in a course and teach it. Um, I'm actually going to be on the East coast in November. I'm going to pig river precision, which is in Virginia. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, that, that should be a pretty good, that should be a pretty cool location. And uh, who, let's try to talk about like a centralized place where we can get together and, and teach a class together. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Sounds awesome. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, man. Well, uh, thank you guys. Uh, check the uh, comment section or check the detail section of the podcast for Ryan's information. Uh, Gun University, uh, follow him on Instagram at Kleckner, uh, C-L-E-C-K-N-E-R. And um, you see what he's up to. And again, thanks guys for listening. We appreciate you. Shoot well and Phil's not here. So keep your face on the gun.